your source for Big Ten talk. It's off tackle Empire. Welcome back once again to Off Tackle Empire. Reverse introduction this week. I'm Andrew Krzyzewski here in Unwatchable Week with Steve Braun. Okay, Thumpasaurus. And hey, I did my homework for Unwatchable Week. I uh, did a lot of not watching. I uh, went and... Mm-hmm. Could have skipped the whole damn slate. You wouldn't have missed a whole lot. Yeah, I saw very little of this, of, of, of this one because, you know, what I decided to do was uh, just... Hey, what if I just removed myself from football? Went out into nature and just... Remain blissfully unaware of this, uh, of the what anything that was happening. I mean, yeah, sure, I had I had coverage, but I figured, you know, if anything really good was going to happen, someone would text me about it. Never got a text. Funny how that works out. In the in the conference this week, we had exactly two competitive games, which is not to say that we had two good games. We're looking up and down the slate here. I think there's a solid argument to be made that actually none of the games played by Big Ten teams were any good this week. No, there were two that were competitive, and they were both, like, some of the worst games that have been played this year. So, let's get right into the first of those, what by some measures might have been the game of the week last week, because we correctly diagnosed, I think, that Michigan-State-Ohio State really wasn't a contest, so the one that was in doubt and that had implications for a couple of division contenders was Michigan and Iowa. Michigan 10, Iowa 3. It was not even that interesting. No. I was getting... I I prided myself on being the last person in the whole group that I was with to check anything college football related on Saturday. But once I did, it was 10-3 to Michigan, and it was like the second quarter, and I just can't believe that score held. Uh, All I saw was interceptions and ineffective offense. Interceptions were the high point of the game from an offensive standpoint. It's like, oh, wow, well, now the other team's offense is even farther behind than they were before. He shouldn't have intercepted that. He should have just dropped it and hoped that they screwed up the punt or fumbled closer to the current line of scrimmage. They would have lost less yardage that way. Ah, man. Both defenses are definitely impressive overall. But let's be clear. This was really more a story of two really bad offenses and two extremely stubborn coaches, each just pleading with the other to take control of the game, and they both refused. Adjusting for sacks, Iowa rushed for one yard on 30 attempts. Yeah, and even if you do adjust for for sacks and count them against passing yards instead, Iowa still only rushed for, I think, about 65 yards, something like that, because that's what the sack yardage ate. Obviously not what you want offensively. (laughs) Iowa coming off of one of their better offensive performances ever last week Maybe you start to think that things are really gelling here, but the truth is, this is an offensive line with one elite player, one really good one, and three substandard offensive linemen relative, at least to Iowa football standards. Tristan Wirfs is great, but he can't block an entire defense by himself, and they also had to flip him to left tackle some because Alaric Jackson is still coming back from injury. So, look, from the Michigan perspective here, you take the win happily because this keeps you in the conference race technically. <laughs> Although, again, because of the game we'll talk about soon, it, it, this is all formality. But look, you take the win, and yet you've got to look at this as a game in which you managed 267 yards of total offense in a game where your defense produced four turnovers for you. You're still only running the ball for about three and a half yards a carry. You're still not making proper use of these receivers. The only touchdown in this game 
was set up by a 50-yard bomb to Nico Collins, and another play on that drive, I think, went for 20-something for Peoples-Jones. But other than that, they didn't, like, they, they're still not throwing the ball downfield. And I still don't get if, like, if somehow they didn't think that Wisconsin and Iowa were games where they needed to break out the whole complete offense. I still just wonder in the back of my head if they're holding something back, thinking they're going to get the drop on a Penn State or Michigan State. You know, the division games they really, really, really have to win. That's the only thing I could come up with because, honestly, Jay Patterson's deep ball looks a hell of a lot better than his short passes do. He missed a couple in this game where I was like, what, what the actual hell am I looking at here? Yeah, this was not a banner day for offense. I mean, you look at some of these numbers. The <clears throat> There's nothing quite like a, uh, a, a game where you score three points after dropping back 50 times. Okay, yeah. so Stanley threw 42 and, of course, got sacked eight times. Uh, Patterson threw 26 times for 147 yards. Uh, there were four interceptions and no passing touchdowns on the day. But the leading rusher was Zach Charbonnet with 42. Yeah, and it, talking about the Iowa offense here, it, we're obviously not an X's and O's breakdown blog, but without getting into the muck too much, the, re- the reason that it worked was they kept calling the same zone-based blitz concepts over and over again, which was the thing that Michigan does more now, where they man up on the outside and then underneath depending on what the guys near the line scrimmage do sometimes they go I mean one of the sacks they got Jordan Glasgow just sort of wandered in and then his fullback turned his back on him so Glasgow's like oh well nobody's between me and quarterback and he's just standing there I guess I'll just go and hit him and he did he got a sack (laughs) Um, look I get that part of that is just a refusal on Iowa's part to adjust their blocking scheme to account for these things but Man, Nate Stanley's a senior quarterback, and like sometime around sack number five or six, don't you like? Don't you start like? You bring in some extra like, protection. Yeah, you know, your coach is like, "Hey, uh, they're they're continuing to hit me. I know I'm big, but you know they're gonna keep." And one of the other thing is, I don't know what it is about Nate Stanley where his instinct when there's a free rusher is for him to turn around and run backwards. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of the reason. I, mean, I think he plays with inverted controls. I think that's the problem. Like inverted yeah. controls for running, not for passing. <laughs> yeah, but it just they never made any adjustments. And uh, look, this game you suppose I suppose you could say this game and last week's game are microcosms of Iowa football in a nutshell. When it works, it can work really well. And when it doesn't work. Well, that's on the players. So, <laughs> yeah, let's. Uh, I well, guess I you know what? Well, let's crack open a win fight try Brewster of the week. Oh, by all means. Which is Founders Kentucky Breakfast Stout. Because, as you can see, things are now getting. This season is now getting mature. It is aging well, and it's getting dark. Yeah, we're halfway in, and there's nothing but blackness for a lot of us. So, we may as well break in. And, you know, the other thing is. This is a more accessible blackness you would think. This used to be a very inaccessible drink. I found it on the shelf at Kroger. A wow. whole shelf of it at Kroger. Uh, very surprising. But last note, uh, last thing I'll point out on Iowa, Michigan, then we will carry on, I promise. The last points in this game, Iowa's field goal, their only points, went on the board midway through the second quarter, I think, with like six minutes and something left, maybe, something like that. From there, here's the drive chart for the rest of the game. Punt, 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 interception, turnover on downs, halftime, interception, punt, 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 missed field goal, punt, 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 end of game. (laughs) My goodness. It was truly a mere, and well, look, punting is winning in the sense that somebody won the game, right? Well, I mean, Will Hart had the superior punting day. (laughs) I just, there were, 
There were two separate strings of four punts in a row. <sighs> Again, it, you know, the story of that game was two coaches staring at each other saying, no, you win the game. And it, <laughs> it turned out that, um, that Michigan lost that argument, which turned out to be a good thing for them. A really similar game to that with a concentrated burst of offense from one team was Penn State-Purdue. On paper, you look at this and you think, oh, that's a complete walkover. Penn State dominated from the beginning. And there's some truth to that. By the time I turned, I tuned into this game, it was already 28 to nothing. It was 28 to nothing in a hurry, very yeah. early into the second yeah. quarter. And the game was functionally over at that point. But it should be said that Penn State put it into neutral a little bit early. Uh, Purdue did get one of those scores back. So they closed it at some point and Penn State tacked another one on. But... Penn State really could have named their score here, and I'm not sure. I mean, I didn't watch enough of this to know if this is James Franklin being a good sport. I find that to be the least likely explanation. Or if it was just a case of Penn State's players looking at the scoreboard, looking at what they were seeing from their opponent, and being like, yeah, we don't need to do anything else here. Um, Because, again, we're going to go back to the drive chart thing here. The first eight possessions of the game, and Purdue got the ball first, went punt, touchdown, punt, touchdown, punt, touchdown. Fumble touchdown. So, uh, well, spicy. Throw a full fumble in there instead of another punt. And in a game like this, you can kind of see a lot. You read a lot by what words they use to describe the lead, and it was what 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 words they use for the headline and for the lead. Yeah. And it's just Clifford leads number twelve Penn State past Purdue thirty-five to seven. When really it could have been like number twelve Penn State demolishes Purdue and salts the earth where it once stood. Uh, look, if you're Purdue, you're really looking to just sim a few more weeks until you get more guys back. I did see something on Twitter today that makes that makes it sound like Tario Fuller is about to return, so they'll have a running back. If they get Sindelar back at all this season, maybe they hang on to something. You know, they could in the bucket, hold on to that, and call it a decent salvage job. But you're really just looking to sim the season and get more Brahms players in at this point because... It's, you know, it's fair to say they've had a ton of injuries, but it's not like they've done a whole lot to adjust for it. And on the flip side, you and I have commented more in the off-season, more in the off-season episodes, but we've commented that actually the only team that's really gearing up for a proper standoff with Ohio State in the long term is Penn State. It's Absolutely. Not, it's not Michigan. Not really. It's not Michigan State. It's not Wisconsin or anybody in the West. Penn State's the team that's recruiting at the quality and the volume and at the important positions that you need to to hang with Ohio State. And this was a pretty good example of that because 10 sacks, even against a backup quarterback, even against a substandard offensive line, is incredible. Uh, they've they've <coughs> semi-quietly put together not just the front-line talent. Everybody knows the name Yutura Grossmatos because it's fun to say. But he, I think he had maybe a sack and a half or two sacks. I don't have the box score in front of me. But they had guys up and down the lineup getting the quarterback. Uh, it looks really kind of like... It reminds me a little bit of like the vintage Urban Meyer defensive lines when he was at Florida. Um, that's the kind of depth that they have with this pass, ru- pass rusher after pass rusher after pass rusher. Um, they're, they still feel a little bit vulnerable against the run, but in this case against Purdue, <clears throat> they're not really, you know, that's not an opponent that's going to look to take advantage of that too much. Oh, and, and then, yeah, to, <laughs> again, to wrap this up, and I, I'm not going to bring up the, the drive chart thing again, but I mentioned the first eight possessions of the game and the dynamism we had there. Um, the first ten possessions of the second half, uh, ten consecutive punts. So <laughs> that's the extent to which Penn State shut it down. There were a lot of punts. 
Yeah, this was one of the. This is probably the biggest week we've had so far. Biggest in the context of B one G S. Man, Purdue had two punters combined for four hundred sixty three yards on twelve punts. Respectable. So I'm gonna let you take the lead on this one here because I only know what there is to say about it. Maryland forty eight, Rutgers seven in the debut. Nunzio Campanile didn't go well. Pianissimo. <laughs> there, with a with a with a decrescendo, yes. Uh, <laughs> pianissimo, poco menomoso. Uh, yeah, so this was just man. What what do you do if you're Rutgers besides just uh, go do something else for the Same. rest of the yeah go go do something else for the rest of the year? Was that intended? <laughs> Not at all. Something about your backyard. We might want to spend some time there as long as there isn't a TV there. Yeah, it's going to be a long rest of the season. Um, shortly before this game began, one of our intrepid Rutgers correspondents, God bless them, mentioned to us that uh, actually not only is Art Sikowski sitting to preserve his red shirt and his eligibility, but now Rasheem Black- Blackshear is doing that too. Oh! So, uh, we I mentioned a couple weeks ago that really Rutgers only had three guys I could think of for sure that I would want playing on my team. And again, my team's Michigan State. It's not like... We are above the appropriate blue chip ratio, or we've got so much talent, we just don't know what to do with it. Now, Michigan State's a decent team, but not a team that would necessarily be turning down starting quality transfers. But I said, and I meant, that there are really only three players I want from Rutgers. One of them is the punter, and we don't really need him this year. Blackshear was another, and then Isaiah Pacheco, the starting running back, is the third. And presumably, he's not... (laughs) I have to think if you're in Pacheco's position, maybe you look at this and you're like... Well, you know, if Raheem's not playing and Art's not playing, I'm getting all the carries. I can show what I'm do, what I'm capable of on a bad team this year and next, and then I'm getting the fuck out of here and going to the league. So, yep. That if I'm in his position, that's my take on it. Amazing is like Rutgers gained 314 yards, but uh, turned it over twice and only scored the one touchdown. Yeah. This was just never close. I mean, and it was close briefly, but Maryland opened it up in the second quarter and. This is a Maryland team that is probably going to finish with about four wins. So Yeah, if that. Well, and the thing is, this win cost Maryland Josh Jackson for some period of time. We don't know exactly how long, but he did go down late in the second quarter with a high ankle sprain. And I guess this, you see the silver lining here of the constant years-long quarterback injury problems Maryland has had is that your backups do gather experience. Yeah. Uh, if only because they've been forced into play. So Terrell Pigram, you know at least, is a game-tested quarterback. Not your starter for a reason, but... Still less of a step down than most teams would have if their only guy who's ever played gets hurt. Other than that, again, it, <laughs> you look at Maryland got to 48 points on this, but somehow, you know, Jackson only passed for 179 yards. Their leading rusher had less than 100. They spread it around. Obviously, they're giving they're getting anybody in the game who wants to play, basically. But, uh, yeah, if you're Rutgers, uh, boy, there's one game you're circling on the schedule, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, this just proved once again... As though we needed more reminders of this, that that it is that as much as Ohio State has separated themselves from the field at the top, it is Illinois and Rutgers at the bottom, well below the other twelve, like a humongous cliff between Rutgers and Illinois and the rest of the Big Ten. Uh, they really have distinguished themselves greatly. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call a segue, and we're going to go a little bit out of order from our lineup and go right on to Minnesota, Illinois. 
I'll go ahead and take point on this, though, because as you mentioned, you, for extremely prudent reasons of mental health, opted to miss the large majority of this game. And on paper, uh, you know, it looked for a while as though you were missing out on a potential upset. The score was closer, longer than I would have guessed. But a cursory examination of the box score would tell you that that was not because of anything Illinois did necessarily. Yeah, essentially this was probably like a, uh, a, a 55 to nothing game where Minnesota just gave us some touchdowns because the two touchdowns were scored by the defense, which still bad, by the way. The defense is still really bad. It's, they, like, it's like when you play one of the old Mario games with your little sibling and they don't, they're terrible at it, so you just die repeatedly. But your mom told you you have to play with them, so once in a while you have to give some extra lives to them. You're not really missing those. It's not going to be any impediment on you playing the game. But to let this other party participate, you got to keep them afloat a little bit just so they don't just lie down in the field and die, I guess. Yeah, so a Minnesota rushing offense that had been held below a total of 500 yards over their first four games um, goes off for 332 against the Illini. And once again, we're 41 games into the Lovey Smith era and we can't stop the run. Well, those numbers I'm giving you are just between Rodney Smith and Shannon Brooks. They had more rushing yards than that altogether. Um, those are the two guys who had most of the carries, but they got a couple other in, a couple others in there, I thought. Meanwhile, noted rushing team Illinois, uh, 14 carries for Reggie Corbin. I didn't see anything about him being hurt, so I don't know what that was all about. Uh, 39 passing attempts, which is amazing because uh, the other day on Twitter when uh, somebody... Uh, some writer that I followed had said, you know, well, the the weather conditions may favor Illinois about as much as they can be with Minnesota's proficiency through the air. It's going to be 30 miles an hour and windy. And I said, Illinois is throwing the ball 40 times tomorrow. <laughs> well, they came up one short. Less of a fan blogger, more of a prophet. Um, so, yeah, Brandon Peters uh, carried the ball twice despite... I presume Minnesota leaving him tons of room to run. Uh, I, I did watch an offensive breakdown clip by a, by some amateur analyst who was way too good for the likes of Illinois, um, showing me Brandon Peters just, uh, man, everything he does is like he thought about it five times before he did it, and essentially every team that that is going to play them Watch is going to watch the Eastern Michigan tape and realize, oh, you blitzed this guy. He can't do anything on time. Um, so that's what happened. Then he left the game after getting crushed because, well, that's what happens when you blitz him and he doesn't know what he's doing. Man, that guy gets absolutely killed out there. Yeah, and it he is not and and. And I, I remember being torn to shreds online over suggesting that Brandon Peters, it might not be in his interest or Illinois' best interest that he goes to Illinois because <laughs> he's not... Because, like, he, he didn't do well against pressure at Michigan, but he, now he's going to play an offense where he's going to be exposed to a ton more pressure. Yeah, well, you know, what, by you saying that, that, you're just a mean, stupid jerk who doesn't actually support this. It's probably what you heard online. Uh yeah. But yeah, Illinois' game plan here is a little mystifying. I mean, at no point this season has this passing offense either been efficient or explosive. And that played out again today through every stage of the game and over the game as a whole. Passing offense was only, I mean, I would call it moderate volume, but relative to the number of total plays you ran, high volume. 
but both inefficient and inexplosive, if that's a word. Spellcheck's telling me well, it's not a word. Four um, yards per attempt in the passing game. One play longer than 20 yards. Uh, man. Yeah, so meanwhile, 27 rushes and nine were by quarterbacks. Yeah. Um, well, that's assuming they actually are all rushes, and the sacks would be wrapped up into that. Yeah, who even knows? I mean, Dre Brown got the ball twice. Ravon Bonner got the ball twice. Corbin got it 14 times. At least they were giving most of them to Corbin. But my goodness, this is the only player on the offense that other teams are actively coveting. Like I, To be honest, I think you have receivers who could be good. I mean, Amadre Babies look good at times. Smalling has looked fine occasionally. Uh, 2018 Smalling showed up and, and just dropped everything that was thrown anywhere near him. But... No, of course, talk, don't talk to me about drops. But many gosh. things were not thrown anywhere near him, as the uh, the clip that I watched did in fact show Matt Robinson just kind of flopping a lame duck towards the sideline where on did, a. Where did you guys find this guy? Uh, no idea, Matt Robinson. Yeah. Uh, Rod Smith found him somewhere between being hired in like February, presumably and, like looking through a dumpster for something to eat. Well, Matt Robinson knows what he's doing, but you know, like he has command of the offense. But he really does not have the physical tools to do it well. I mean, I, 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 saw his, I saw clips of him, like, hopping up in the air to try and see over his dudes when he was throwing. <laughs> yeah, there, I don't remember exactly what the downer distance or game situation was, but there was, a, there was a throw he made, and the guy he was throwing to was open-ish, and the pass that he let go, I was just like, oh, baby, what is you doing? It was, yeah. like, it was mystifyingly bad for a Big Ten quarterback. Isaiah Williams, who I assume is hurt, didn't travel with the team. Um, I sure hope that it's because he's hurt. Yeah, I'm now hoping one of my players is hurt because the alternative is scary. Um, well, enough of that. This, is, this, this was just, I mean, at this point, it's hard to be mad at Lovey Smith anymore because you know what he is. You know what he's doing. At this point, forward, from this point forward, all the anger needs to be towards the athletic director because... This just can't happen. I stand by the fact that I was... Uh, I, I stand by my initial reaction to hiring Lovey Smith. I just can't... I literally can't believe that it turned out this poorly. Um, it, it really seemed he'd just been fired, most people thought unfairly, from Tampa Bay after being fired, no, many I, people thought unfairly, from Chicago. I don't know about Chicago being unfair as much, but Tampa firing him was nuts. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that First of all, that he's ready to go back down to college and all the transitions and lifestyle that that entails. And yeah. he was either unwilling or unable to make the adjustments to his whole process that were required to succeed in the college game. Um, that's really all there is to it, and it it's just I don't know. I don't know how I can ever really trust anything again because you know, man, to have. A situation where we had interim Bill Cubitt and then have Josh Whitman on his first day in the job, Lovey Smith lands in our lap. This is not a guy that got fired from Florida um, for losing way more than they were accustomed to, or a guy that won uh, nine games at Toledo one time because his offensive coordinator was a genius. This is Lovey Smith. This is a guy who took the Bears to the Super Bowl with Rex Grossman. Right. Uh, this was a guy who, again... Still, after taking over a dumpster fire in Tampa Bay for two years, still has a winning record in the NFL. 89 and 87 NFL career record. That's it's not easy to win NFL games. Uh, and he just fell into our lap. I, I, I couldn't believe it. 
it was the most exciting thing that I think had had maybe ever happened for for Illinois. And and four years later, here we are. Back in that first season, we lost to Minnesota forty to seventeen. Did you really? We did. We did. I was at that game, and that was just one where like. We, we knew it was going to be bad. That was when the Gophers were headhunting in the secondary. Um, oh, right. I guess that must be where we learned it from. That would have been the end of the killer, right? That, that was the Clays season. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. That was that was one where Duke McGee knocked out Malik Turner, and then and then as he's laying motionless, uh, McGee just goes around and like starts like chest bumping with the coaches. Yeah. Um, That's Trace Clays for you. So yeah, here we are. Uh, I'm gonna call my shot here and say I think Lovey Smith is fired on Sunday, October 20th, after we get drilled for the second week in a row. Our next two games are at home against Michigan and Wisconsin. And if we're if he's gonna if he's not gonna last the season, that's gonna be about the best time to do it. Yeah, a half-empty homecoming stadium might be the thing that jars the athletic department into some action. Speaking of Wisconsin. Uh, Badgers 48, Golden Flash is 0. Jonathan Taylor had 5 touchdowns and about 220 yards from scrimmage and did not play a single snap in the second half. That's all. There's nothing else to say. This is a bad Mac team. It went exactly how we figured. And of course, Wisconsin is now firing on all cylinders as my team, fresh off a physical and emotional beating, gets ready to go play them. Before we talk about that and about my team, though, let's get it out of the way because we've put it off long enough. Nebraska 13, Northwestern 10. Now, if you go back to our preview of this past week... We which, told you not to watch this game. What I specifically said was, you know, I don't know who's going to win and who's going to lose, but I can guarantee you that this game will be dumb. This game will be extremely stupid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> extremely stupid. Let's pass over the macro level stuff where you've got Aiden Smith inserted as the starting quarterback because he, quote, knows the offense better and then promptly getting a delay of game on the first offensive snap. Um, let's talk about running this average at best quarterback athlete. Uh, what, like 14, 15, 16 times they ran him? When apparently Hunter Johnson is either too hurt or too dumb to be capable of playing for you. The guy, you know, the guy, the most ballyhooed recruit in Northwestern history is now benched behind Aiden Smith. I mean, Aiden Smith carried the ball more times than Drake Anderson. Yeah, yeah, think about that. Think about that and think about how long Mick McCall has been Northwestern's offensive coordinator despite doing shit like that at least a couple of times a year. That being said, you know, going into the fourth quarter, it was tied, this game was tied at 10 for quite a while. And I was glancing at this TV as I was out for dinner. I was like, there's no way Northwestern doesn't win this game because this is, it's one of these games where it's like, how are we still tied with these idiots? If you're a Nebraska fan, that has to be what you're thinking. Um, Nebraska somehow... Uh, didn't turn the ball over. Yeah. That's what's so crazy about this. They didn't turn the ball over once. And still only scored 10 points. It seems impossible. But Northwestern only turned it over the one time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, look, like I said, we're going to pass over the macro level, like, game planning decision. It's zero in on the end of the game. Nebraska's got the ball. Tie game. Nebraska's driving. Time is running very low. Northwestern's got timeouts. They've got all their timeouts. But they don't take any of them to try to preserve the clock because look, North even with the even with a walk-on kicker who used to be a safety, Nebraska's still in his range. Like we know he can kick the ball this far, so they're gonna get a shot at this field goal. And regardless of what happens there, whether Nebraska makes it, whether they miss it, you want to leave yourself some time, do you not? Even if it's, I mean, if you're just hoping that they're gonna miss it, then I guess you don't need to leave yourself any time because you're playing for overtime somehow at that point. 
but it, it, it's a very close field goal. It's inside of 40 yards. In the event that they make it, you have left yourself no opportunity at all to win the game by letting them drain the whole clock before they kick it. And I mean, knowing what he has said in the past on the subject, there's no way that Pat Fitzgerald's thought wasn't, no, fuck that, I don't need the clock. What I need to do is ice this kicker three times because, and then he'll wave a piece of paper dismissively <laughs> in your face. Stats say it works, so, you know, See, hashtag I don't care. I call this, I call what Pat Fitzgerald employed the hazel maneuver. Spending all your time outs to ice a kicker three times in a row because it was done by Daryl Hazel in Lovey Smith's first season <laughs> against him. Uh, and it did, in fact, prevent Chase McLaughlin. Well, I don't know that it prevented it. But subsequent to that, Chase McLaughlin uh, made his, had his first career miss <laughs> and doinked it off the uprights for the game winner. So Pat Fitzgerald attempted a hazel maneuver. Now look. When your head coach attempts something that uh, that is known as the hazel maneuver, you're already in pretty dangerous territory. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. But you know, I, I actually I take it back. Lovey Smith should coach out the entire season because based on how Pat Fitzgerald's doing this year, oh god, I want to watch Lovey Smith and 2019 Pat Fitzgerald go head to head at the end of the year. See who can do the stupidest thing. Oh no. <laughs> oh my goodness! Wow, because oh. Fitzgerald is. I you know, just, his decision-making ha- in the game has been... Has never been good. It's been esoteric yeah. at best a lot of times. But he really seems to be having a... Maybe it's just that the situations are different this year. But, man, he's had two really high-profile, like, weird ones. Like, he has had himself a couple of really weird ones this year. But here's the thing. He's always been prone to these kinds of things. But remember, they're coming off a division title. I think he probably views that as proof of concept for his batshit insane way of managing the clock sometimes. Because it like the, the smugness he's had since the end of last season, he's, it's never been. I mean, keep in mind, they've had seasons on paper that were arguably as good, even though they didn't go to a Big Ten title game. They've had seasons with more wins. Right, and he's never been quite this much of a booger before. Uh I think I really do think hanging that division banner was the worst thing that could have happened for Northwestern's program long term. Because look, understand of course he's never going anywhere. He's there until he dies, and he's still still very young. Although you, you was it you the pointed out that he and Scott Frost are the same age. Yeah. Even though Fitzgerald's been coaching for like fifteen years at Northwestern, yeah, that's now. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the thing is, like, what I guess this means is that we're going to see twenty years from now. What what someone's attitude would be like if they were 130? Because because he's, <laughs> he's already, already, he's already mentally about 75 right yeah. now. So we don't know what kind of attitude someone would have at the age of 130. But we're going to be able to find that out through he's, how Pat Fitzgerald acts. He's, he's what like 48, 50, something like that, and he's already yelling at clouds. Yeah, just get, <laughs> if he retires around the time most coaches do, he's got another 15 years at least. So, yeah, do, do a progression line in your head of what his press conferences look like now versus what they looked like five years ago, and then extrapolate that trend line out to the end of his career. I wonder if he'll regress all the way to, like, pre-Civil War, like, Senate, and just start, like, beating a reporter oh, over yeah. the head he'll, with a cane. He's going to cane somebody, <laughs> yes. He absolutely is. Uh, <laughs> man. Or, no, not another reporter. Uh, not a reporter, another coach. No, he's 44. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to be here at least another 20 years. At least. Oh. 
So think yeah, of, that, think of the career retrospective of just batshit insane stuff that he says that you're gonna have by the time it's over. So especially it's be, like watch, he'll never win another division title ever. But just watch. Like, <laughs> oh man. All right. So yeah, he'll coach against Lovey Smith, and he'll seem a lot more older and senile. <laughs> Which is it takes some doing. Uh, okay, so to address a little bit more of the substance here, look, I do think there's actually a decent chance that Northwestern's defense is still pretty good. So if you're a Nebraska fan, maybe that's what you keep in mind about what a struggle bust this game was moving forward. Um, Adrian Martinez getting hurt is obviously the big story, as it was last year, as it was, I think, to an extent for Bennett earlier this year, as it's going to be for the rest of his time at Nebraska, because he's still a pretty skinny dude, he still runs the ball a lot by design of this offense, and he still he has this kind of way that he runs where he's like he's like he kind of like wobbles and stretches. Oh, you mean like crazy legs, to, Hirsch? Yeah, he's like trying to gumby his way to extra yards, and he puts himself in a lot of strange positions where he's not braced. He's gonna get hurt a lot. It's gonna continue to be a thing as long as he's here. I wonder how uh, Wisconsin will take to him uh, to him doing that crazy legs Hirsch thing. <laughs> I don't think they take too kindly to that kind of disrespect. Uh, only other thing I would say is Wandale Robinson is fun to watch, so that's another good thing. And, and look, a win is a win at this point. I think you're probably still on the outside looking in for the division picture, although they're, what, 3-2, 2-1 now Nebraska is, I think? No, 4-2, and 2-1. Two, two so bowl eligibility shouldn't be an issue, and, you know, 2-1 in the conference could be worse. You know what? At, at some point, like, you're going to have to start asterisking everybody's wins over Illinois and Rutgers. I guess. <laughs> I guess. It, yeah, it's true. Um, the wins they do have are not exactly over the teams they're going to be trying to climb over for the division title. So, all right. There were, there were over teams we already assumed they were better than. That's, I think, our point. Yes. Yes. So, Michigan State, Ohio State. Um, I guess I have thoughts on this one. Despite this game being closer than I thought it would be in the score column... This is still Ohio State covering a 20-point spread over a ranked opponent with relative ease. From an MSU perspective, maybe you can squint at this game and trick yourself into thinking that, well, you know, if a couple plays go a little bit differently, we're right in this game. But, look, Ohio State racked up almost 300 yards in the second quarter. As soon as they got on track, the lights went out and this game was over. Um, it, it, the, no, the, the illusion that on many plays MSU was hanging with the Buckeyes is because the long plays, the backbreakers count and they happen. And in this kind of matchup, they're going to happen for Ohio State way, 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 way more often than they do for MSU. So all it took was David Dowell biting for just half a second on a run on run action and then Benjamin Victor's behind him, 60-yard touchdown. All it took was Xavier Henderson filling the wrong gap. Now there's nobody in Dobbins' way between him and the end zone, 70-something yard touchdown. Um, those aren't like those aren't errors or glitches in the matrix. Those that's the re, that's the result of a tiny little misstep, and then the difference in athleticism being so vast that it, it's not a mistake that you can't cover it up. That that little mistake snowballed instantly into something that MSU couldn't get over. Um, and no, as far as it being on a game by game or play by play basis, relatively even, I don't even necessarily buy that because. Look, Dobbins' production in particular was a result of MSU's defense wearing down. Even outside of the big runs, he was still running at a healthy clip. And part of that's just because MSU doesn't have the depth. Yeah, for the first half, their front was doing a decent job most of the time in preventing big plays, but 
the ones that did happen happened. And as the game went on, there were more and more of them, not of the 60-yard variety, but of 8, 10, 12 yards, because MSU just doesn't rotate anymore. They don't have any depth. So I don't know. The only, the only thing I would really ask questions about if I had the chance was, you know, they attempted two field goals in the first half. And I think one of them would have been to tie the game. But I don't know if you're in this position as this kind of underdog. I just wonder if maybe their relative success in the past against Ohio State might have blinded D'Antonio a little bit to what this game was going to require, if you want kind to. Kind of uh, taking the desperation out of it. Yeah, I wonder know? if they thought. I wonder if he thought because they had at that point they had already had a successful drive of their own. You know, they they fumbled on the first on two of the first four plays of the game that they had. They lost two fumbles almost immediately, and their defense managed to hold those ensuing possessions to only three points. I think once that happens, maybe D'Antonio looks at his team and is like, "Yeah, we can do this. I can play this close to the vest and conservative the way I always do, and we're still going to be in it at the end." You no, know, that drives me nuts because you got to have. Situational awareness about, you know, surely you know how your team matches up. Surely you know what the deal is, even if you never say it publicly. And when you've got the shittier team, it doesn't particularly matter how well it's going. you got to take risks early in the game. Yeah, and they didn't. And I can't complain too much about it because I really don't think it ultimately made the difference. The reason that I think about these things is because they already lost another game for similar reasons against an opponent they should have beat. They're going to have more of those games. Three of their next four games are at Wisconsin versus Penn State, Illinois, and then at Michigan. Wisconsin, Penn State, and Michigan are all at least as good at Michigan State, if not better. They're going to need to take risks in those games, too, if they want to win. The fact that they wouldn't do it here, it's a little bit troubling. But that being said, there were other elements of the game plan that I like. I mean, when your starting tackles are Tyler Higby and Jordan Reed, I don't know what you do because, yeah, they, they actually – did a pretty good job of scheming around Chase Young such that he didn't rip Lorikey's head off. But the other blitzes that Ohio State sent, the fact that there's just, there's blown protections all over the place, it, it was bailing water out of a rowboat with a cannonball-sized hole in the middle of it. You know, there's a lot of those games that you're worried about. But the, the thing is, I mean, even with Illinois, you got to be conscious of the fact that for whatever reason, if you as a head coach got beat in the playoffs by the 2006 Indianapolis Colts, Mark D'Antonio can't beat you. <laughs> right. For whatever reason, he's 0-3 against coaches that lost to the 2006 Colts in the playoffs. <laughs> uh, so to turn this around and look at the Ohio State angle a little bit here. Uh, oh, well, before I do, last thing I would say, and again, I, I try not to bang on individual players too much, and this isn't even necessarily a criticism of him, but Michigan State's got a Matt Coughlin issue. Last year, he was first-team all-conference. Two years ago, he won them the game against Penn State. He's got enough of a track record that I see why D'Antonio might not want to go away from him until he is absolutely sure he has to do it. But the guy has now missed six field goals this year for an offense that is better than I was worried it might be, but is still not terribly efficient. Four of those misses have come in their two losses, and he's now on a four-game streak with at least one missed kick. The arguments here seem pretty basic. The argument for continuing, continuing to play him is he's your only proven option, and if you bench him, it will permanently destroy his confidence and you can never use him again, and without knowing that you have a better option there, you risk your kicking game completely falling apart. The counter-argument, which I feel to be the correct one, is by continuing to run him out there when he's clearly not mentally correct, you are doing that anyway, and it's materially harming your chances to win. Against Arizona State, I think it's fair to say 
a better kicking performance wins you the game. So not to mention, if you're a kicker and you're not Matt Coughlin, Coughlin, whatever, however it is he pronounces it, yeah, uh, and yeah. you're doing good work, right now. What do you think? Are you feeling a lot like Charlie Cubander on the bench as Pat Fitzgerald goes for two incessantly? <laughs> like, hey, you know I got a leg over here, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not hurt. Their kickoff specialist is on scholarship. He's in the class behind Matt Calden. They gave another kicker a scholarship. Yeah, so and they've he's got... just doing kickoffs. Wow. So that's all. Um, again, it, maybe this is maybe this is uh, missing the forest for the trees, but. There's going to be other games where that this kicking game matters, and the fact that they... I mean, I, I haven't seen the press conference. I doubt anyone's even going to bother to ask him because he'll just, you know, give some Sam Eagle answer, but I think at some point it's got to be an issue that's addressed. It, look, I'm going to the game in Madison this weekend. The high is 45, and there's apparently a chance of snow. I, it makes me think of the Nebraska game that I went to last year where the weather was miserable. He missed at least one field goal, if not two, and lost by a field goal. Um, this is not a team that has the margin to fuck around with this kind of thing, but it feels like they're going to anyway. So it's a shame Lovey couldn't ever put together like a decent team uh, for for a lot of reasons. But a lot of it, a, a big thing would be that he has uh, this year games against Kirk Ferentz, Mark D'Antonio, and and uh, Pat Fitzgerald. And it would have been good to see to see just kind of stalemates play out to see like who. Who makes the stupider decision on the sidelines? That would have been a great way to see people win and lose games. Great, so great, sure word. Um, all right, so the Ohio State perspective here. You know that you're capable of bleeding. Uh, a team did make you play your starters into the fourth quarter. Teams with better defensive depth, and Penn State is number one with a bullet on this list, are probably going to be of a little bit of concern to you. But that being said, you, you also learned that if Justin Fields is challenged and has an off day, which he did, Fields did not have a very good day either throwing or really even running the ball, although he had some scrambles that were absolute killers. If Fields isn't like the Johnny football clone that he's been so far this season, you can just give the ball to J.K. Dobbins 25 times and you will be just fine. Um, yeah, there were, there were some questionable decisions Fields made. He overestimated his ability to... Uh, you know, to break tackles and escape guys that were really disciplined about maintaining the edge. And and uh, he's not going to be able to get away with that for, you know, late in the game against Penn State, for right. instance. Yeah, because the... But you, State, you take State the decision have, out of his yeah, hands. Penn State will have guys who aren't as tired, but right. It, you take the decision out of his hands, and you, you lose that liability. Yeah. And, well, I'm not just running the ball with Dobbins, but Master Teague is the next guy. He it, He's going to be a real problem, just like Dobbins is now. Just like every Ohio State running back has been back since the beginning of time. So. I just want to say his name as though I am Alfred from the uh, the '90s, um, you know, the uh, Batman the animated series. Master Teague. Yes, yes. Here's your football, Master Teague. <laughs> Please do good take care. Please do take good care of it. And he did. I, so I don't know if Ohio State necessarily learned too much about themselves. Their defense wasn't going to be in any real peril here because MSU's offensive line is just so limited. And, hey, even when MSU did have some plays drawn up, man, the receivers continue to drop the ball a lot. But they're going to face better teams on both sides of the ball. Well, I mean, defensively, this is probably a comparable challenge to what they'll see. But knowing what it means to play a whole game against a team that can actually make you work for it is probably going to be a valuable experience for the Buckeyes. Good thing we gave it to them, right? Oh, fuck me. All right. 
Let's look around the country. Um, we predicted Army Tulane would be a banger, and we were correct. Here's what was incredible about that game is the number of passes that was thrown in that yeah. game was a lot <laughs> higher than I think anybody and even us anticipated. Because yeah, that that was uh, that that you know if you read uh, MN Wildcats, uh, don't watch this, watch that. Surely you know this was his dream matchup, and. Boy, did that deliver. I hope you watch that instead of any of the other shit that was on in the early slot. Yeah, because my god, it was a bad slayer. But look, um, Tulane is approaching must-watch status, I think. And if you are in a coaching search, or will be soon, not that we know anybody in that position, Willie Fritz is a name to know. Uh, whether he'll move on from Tulane this quickly or not, I guess, remains to be seen. But he's a guy who's going to be in a Power 5 job very soon. Yeah, then there was a, a, a while there where none of the... Big Ten or none of the Big Twelve teams from Oklahoma were scoring against Texas Tech or Kansas as uh, expected. Yeah, so at one point Oklahoma State was down nineteen nothing <laughs> to Texas Tech, and Oklahoma spent a lot of time dicking around against Kansas before finally getting it together. Yeah. Now at the end of the day, it didn't matter because it was forty-five to seven before some garbage time points got scored to cut it to forty-five twenty. But yeah, and I, I didn't bring up the Oklahoma Kansas game because of the result, but just because. Again, first, just to let the record reflect, Oklahoma really struggled with Kansas for a while, and they found themselves in this spectacular situation of punting on fourth and goal, and to top that, Kansas didn't feel the returner, so Oklahoma pinned him deep. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I missed the fourth and goal thing. Oh yeah, get into that. I'll, I'll keep going about it. Um, you mentioned it also, Oklahoma State did stop in the wrong one light town. Um, does Iowa qualify as a dick trip since they're technically the higher ranked team? No, not really. It's a road game against a ranked opponent. Same thing in my mind for um, Auburn losing at Florida. That's a top 10 team on the road. Boy, was uh, Gus Malzahn's reaction to that late pick incredible. I mean, his body was folded in half as he did... He, he, he did a dead surrender Cobra because yeah. he, he was surrender Cobra-ing, but his whole... His whole upper torso was inverted because he was folded in half. Well, he may also have been driving because he's wearing a sweater vest in 88 degrees Gainesville, which means it's, the heat index is about 130. So <laughs> he made that choice knowing what it's like there. There are, however, a couple of spectacular games. We do have a, an episode of Pac-12 After Dark riding again um, as Stanford firmly 100% eliminates the conference from playoff contention by taking down Washington, um, and boy, yeah, Washington just eats pavement at the farm to a team with a backup quarterback and a team that lost their best player in tackle Walker Little. And the other thing, of course, the one that everyone was actually watching because it was a more interesting game, Kusa after Curfusa, as uh, Southern Methodist, with a 21-point deficit in the second half, comes all the way back against Tulsa and ends up winning in three overtimes. That was a hell of a game. And, uh, I was watching that one. Uh, that was just, uh, man, Sonny Dykes, by the way. There was another guy that I don't think, uh, I don't know if he was given a completely fair shake at California, now that they're not glad to be in the situation that they're at. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, he inherited, uh, not inherited, but he got Shane Buchel. But still, you can't possibly credit all that to one Texas washout at quarterback. No, he's done better than I think would be reasonable to expect there. We are all forgetting how good his Louisiana Tech teams were, he says, trying to justify that one time that they got crushed and also that other time that they got crushed. People forget. Um, So we'll do our last recurring segment now, and that would be the Hot Seat Watch. Um, First, 
the interesting case of Randy Edsel. Do you think there is any pressure on him at UConn whatsoever, given that they have declared their intention to stop trying in football? No. I mean, I think, yeah. I think at this point, it's more like, if anything, Randy Edsel is probably feeling like he's a little too good for the situation, which is hilarious. Yeah, truly comical. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I was going to say, what do you think the odds are that he leaves again? But who the hell is hiring him at this point? Um, Illinois. Yeah, well, and so much is made of this weird contract he has where he has all these bizarre incentives based on things that happen in the game. But actually, apparently, his overall compensation is still very low, which is why UConn hired him back and presumably why they allow him to do things like get $2,000 because UConn forced two turnovers Apt. in a 26-point loss to a bad South Florida team. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that's my favorite thing. I wish more contracts were like that because... I think it would give us more of a window into the coach's true soul. Like, for example, I'm sure that actually Kirk Ferentz doesn't have a base salary at all, and he gets bonuses based on how many zone running plays they have per game and on how many yard punt yards they have over a season. I think Lovey Smith gets $500,000 for every timeout that he has remaining at the end of each half. <laughs> That's the only explanation can't, for it. Can't use those. Got a balloon payment coming up. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of Lovey, yeah, he's a dead man walking. And like I said, I'm calling my shot. It's going to be Sunday, October 20th. We can start a pool on that. Um, there, uh, that's a, the, that's the, the stu- college football Reddit does have a coaching dead pool. Um, <laughs> that I had to enter five coaches and when I think they'll be fired. And I had, um, you know, you don't want to do it before they get fired. I thought, for some reason, I thought Chris Ash would make it to the end of the season. I'm pretty sure that I do have Lovey Smith getting fired at after the homecoming game. Um, no, no, I had Chris Ash being fired after Illa Nutgers and Lovey Smith being fired at the end of the season, I think, was originally what I, what I did. <laughs> the only thing they should allow you to do is basically like a long odds parlay where if you had called that Chris Ash and Lovey Smith would both be fired immediately after Illinois Nutgers, then you get, then yeah, you there get, was you get all like you win automatically, you win the whole pool. Another thing that I saw <laughs> was from like a, a coaching hot seat article from last year that had five guys that were on the hot seat. Uh, when with Chris Ash fired, Lovey Smith won the Tontine. <laughs> the only one that that was still around. So anyway. Does Chip Kelly survive the season at UCLA? Dude, you got you got blown out by Oregon State. Well, That's a rare occurrence. Trick question because he doesn't actually have a boss currently because Eddie Guerrero. Wait, is that the guy? I know. I know the athletic director's last name is Guerrero. I called him Eddie Guerrero. Did I just turn him into a wrestler? Yes, I believe you um, did. I think that might be his name. Though, <laughs> the athletic director at UCLA. Hold on. Let me. All right. Hold on. Hold on. We researched very thoroughly before. Well, everybody knows that. Uh, that Stone Cold Steve Austin is, in fact, the athletic director at Stephen F. Austin. If he's not, why the hell not? Dan Guerrero. Pretty close. Generic <laughs> white guy name. Whatever. Um, he announced... I don't think he's gone yet, but he announced his retirement. Presumably, he's not going to fire the head coach and leave the football team completely adrift. Although, would that really be worse than what... Like, if you're Chip Kelly right now, his reputation for disliking recruiting is already well-known. What does his recruiting pitch consist of now? Is he even actually still doing I'm it? I'm the athletic director now. <laughs> I'm in charge. You want a dorm? I am the state. You want a dorm named after you? I am, I am the senate. senate. <laughs> we both knew it. Yeah. Prequel memes are in abundance here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the kind of week it was. Um, 
Georgia named their score against Tennessee and granted them some mercy. It was funny. That game was 14-10, to 10, like, in the second quarter. Well, right, you say that like that means there was any danger. Of course, it, does, of course, it doesn't <laughs> mean anything. In the second quarter, the game, the game wasn't completely over yet. Uh, Tennessee is starting to feel a little bit like the Nebraska of the Tennessee, except if Nebraska had... Tennessee is starting to feel like the Nebraska of the Tennessee. Does that make Middle Tennessee? Does that make Middle Tennessee the Iowa of the SEC? Except Nebraska's never been so bad as to drive its fan base to this level of insanity. So, boy, if, you know, if for example they had held on to Mike Riley and he'd gone like three and nine two more seasons, I think this, like what we see from Tennessee now, is what we would have caught from Nebraska. So in a way, we should be relieved that they got their dream higher. Well, there's a fan. recruiting, not a recruiting. There is a player exodus. Players are just leaving Tennessee right now. Well, in the one of the guy didn't necessarily make his own choice to do that, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's a rats abandoning ship situation. I mean, there was a, you know, as we constantly relitigate things about how uh, how Lovey Smith handled the first year or two of his tenure and and players leaving. With Who is we? <laughs> the, the the general Illinois football community online. All all five of us, you know, and. And where, where like, they could really use a, a, an experienced safety such as Patrick Nelson. Well, you know, apparently Patrick Nelson told Lovey to go F himself. But, you know, in defense of Patrick Nelson, like, to his credit, Lovey can go F himself at this point. So, you know, he wasn't wrong there. So I don't, I don't see, you know, what the big deal was. Anyway, um, Gus Malzahn has entered the hot seat because he finally <laughs> lost a game. He lost a game on the road at number 10, Florida. Um... So yeah, fire up those fire up those flight aware tracks. Oh yeah, for whatever reason, I had a feeling that Washington was going to step in it at Stanford. So that is Washington definitely earns the dick trip of the week for for you know this was seemingly the Stanford team that we we posited may finally be the one that says David Shaw doesn't have it anymore. And of course, Washington, the conference's beacon of hope at this point, goes and and, and steps in it. Could have been any other way. Never changed Pac-12. That was about an hour. Your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle. Empire.